The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. My guest today as a former TSA Air Marshal is known for the difficult decision in alerting the public of a plan to remove Air Marshals from long-distance flights for a period of two months in 2003. Following the disclosure and due to his sacrifice, the plan was subsequently rescinded. Robert McLean talks to the issues and concerns that have damaged the reputation of this agency formed in the shadow of September the 11th, 2001. My guest today as a former TSA Air Marshal is attributed to and known for his dedication to alerting the public of a plan to remove Air Marshals from long-distance flights for a period of two months in 2003. Following the disclosure and due to his sacrifice, the plan was rescinded. The decision on his part and enormous risk led to changes in the TSA structure and quite possibly the protection of lives during the period in question. Robert McLean's service was subsequently terminated in 2006 amid fears of recrimination and exposure to further budget-led cuts, affecting the lives of people on domestic and non-stop long-distance flights. The direct implications upon him have created concerns for survival, where the terms and compromise of this decision has isolated him and the opportunities of serving his country in law enforcement. Robert McLean, welcome to you. Thanks for having me on, David. Robert, uh, but just before we uh, start charting this this issue and your life uh, since 2003, could I just take you back to your your childhood, um, just to give us listeners a sense of where you come from, what your values were, and and the environment that you grew up in? Yeah, I was uh, born in on Torrejon Air Base in Madrid, Spain, where my father was a commissioned Air Force officer and met my mother, who was a translator for the Air Force. We lived in Spain until about 1975, where we uh, lived, uh, came to move to California. And from then on, my mother always worked for the federal government. Uh, my father left the picture, and I had, I had two stepfathers who pretty much raised me. And they were also, uh, one was a retired Army colonel, and another was a uh, civil servant for the, for the federal government also. So, so right from those early days, am I right in saying that it was always your mission to, to uh, support your country, to work for the government? Absolutely. The tradition pretty much started with my uh, grandfather, who was also a commissioned officer in the uh, Navy. And... Uh, my brother currently is an Air Force uh, major and uh, serving ac- active duty. What was it um, that took you into the U.S. Air Force? Uh, out of all of the, the services, what, was that a decision based upon somebody else in the family being in, the, in that service, or, or how did that come about? Well, I, I took the, uh, the military aptitude test. Uh, back then it was called the ASVAB test. I'm not sure what it's called now, but I, I scored extremely high on it. And 
the Air Force heavily recruited me for its uh, nuclear weapons program, specifically uh, its uh, intercontinental ballistic missile systems. So I felt uh, there was a chance to get a top-secret clearance at only being 18 years of age and working with uh, some very sensitive systems. So it was the Air Force where I decided to, uh, to uh, enlist for four years. I'm assuming that that, uh, that security level that you, you were provided through that speciality code still exists, or do you not possess that now? Uh, at this point, my, my top secret clearance that was first granted to me when I was 18 is, is still, it's, right now it's dormant because it needs to be upgraded again. But also at the same time, when I was, when I was in the Air Force, I was certified under the Department of Defense's Personnel Reliability Program, in which uh, you're consistently monitored because you have access to nuclear weapons and its critical components. So not only did I have the top secret clearance, but I had that certification uh, by the Department of Defense. You were um, subsequently discharged, honorable discharge, um, and you left the U.S. Air Force um, to go into the U.S. Border Patrol. Um, what were the considerations there? Had, had you just had more interest in, in being out more in the public domain rather than being in the services? Well, it was a chance not only to continue serving uh, my country and defending it, but I had I grew up speaking Spanish, so I was fluent in the Spanish language. So my language skills in on the southwest border were very useful for the Border Patrol and allowed me to to really excel to the point where I was uh, I was appointed as a recruiter. I was a field training officer. Uh, I was certified as an academy instructor. I uh, was involved with uh, public relations, and so I uh, had. It was it was definitely a place for for me to uh, use a lot of my skills that I had acquired over the years, including what uh, my language skills that I grew up with. The memories, uh, specifically, that you had during that time, as far as the. Uh, the people that you came across that were fleeing Mexico and, and attempting to come into the U.S. for work? Yeah, we were pretty much, we were overrun uh, every night. Uh, it was uh, not only we were overrun by, by uh, illegal aliens crossing, but also because of narco narcotics smugglers. So we were constantly involved in high-speed pursuits in the middle of the desert, and on uh, in the middle of the night with unlit dirt roads, it was uh, it was definitely a, a a war on the border every night, and it was frustrating because there was a lot of political policies that uh, sort of tied our hands and didn't allow us to effectively do our jobs, and I was uh, starting to get pretty frustrated year year after year with uh, the status quo. Did you um, did you find yourself having compassion, however, for those poor people coming across? I mean, were there situations where it just was plain dreadful the conditions that they had been in, and and, and the 
the, the sacrifice they were making to just try and get across the border to, to get jobs. Oh, absolutely. Uh, 90% of these people just wanted to come up north and do some honest labor and, and gather as much cash as they could and uh, go back south. Most of them did not want to live here. They didn't. They knew that uh, with with the uh, with the amount of money that they were earning and living in the United States, they would just never be happy. So most of them would would come north the United States, uh, work really hard, and go back down south to uh, spend their money. And my wife, I met my wife in a Mexican border town. And I immigrated her up north uh, while I was still a uh, border patrol agent. So I have a lot of love for for the Mexican culture and a lot of sympathy for what they deal with. And essentially, they live in a country with borderline anarchy, and they want to come here and uh, uh, create some some kind of uh, opportunity and income for themselves. So, yeah, we saw a lot of. A, a lot of uh, poverty and people just desperate, desperate to get away from Mexico. Now, were you on that job during the events of September the 11th, 2001? Yes, I did. I uh, worked the day shift the day the, uh, the September 11th attacks happened. And I remember getting up in the morning and getting ready to go and turn on the television and I was watching ABC National News and saw a gaping, smoking hole uh, right there on TV. And then the, uh, the second plane hit the other World Trade Center tower. And then driving on the way to work, the radio was announcing that the State Department had been attacked and the Pentagon had been attacked. So it was definitely a very surreal event. It was, uh, it was the you could tell even the public was panicking because we couldn't maintain our checkpoint operations because the uh, it seemed like the drivers were 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 sort of in a daze. So we shut down the checkpoints so that uh, there wouldn't be any uh, any incidents. That was a dreadful time. Um, I know that you. Uh, then were obviously considered uh, for the Federal Air Marshal Program. Now, I'm taking it that to be considered for that, you, you must be pretty good at your job. Yes. Uh, they, there, were, there were about 200,000 applicants for the position that were qualified, and um, they only took the best of the best immediately because the, the first people to be hired we're supposed to ramp up the organization and provide leadership and training. So it was, uh, they were very selective in its, uh, in its first classes. And of course, I was in the very first class of air marshals to graduate after the attacks. It was only, there were only thir- 35 of us. Now tell me, um, you're, you're going from the Border Patrol and you are taking up uh, a, a, another uh, step in your your journey um, in the air marshal program, realizing, I suppose, the risks, uh, the, the risks that you may have to face. Um, what was it that, that 
urged you to do that to take that uh, uh, to take that journey out of the border patrol and and into that realm well most of all there was a sense of uh, wanting to go to the trenches and and fight this uh, this enemy that just really kicked our rear end so there was I had a lot of motivation to to right that wrong and I, I chose uh, aviation security. Uh, second of all, I thought it was a great opportunity, career opportunity, to uh, get on the ground floor of a major new agency being created. Uh, so those were pretty much my my uh, most motivational, and it was it was just a uh, it was a new path to take that uh, I thought had a lot of opportunity. So I took it. Now, what is the, uh, and, and just briefly covering this, Robert, but what was the transition um, under the new Homeland Security to this Federal Air Marshal Services? I mean, was this a completely new paradigm that was organized and, and birthed out of the uh, 9-11 bombing? Yes, uh, the agency only had 33 Federal Air Marshals at the time, and all of them were were very uh, highly experienced uh, military special operations and uh, police SWAT team members. And originally, the program was very covert um, and had it was it was pretty much the the main focus was to protect that flight deck from getting attacked. As as time went on, the when the when the retired Secret Service managers took over the agency, we were more expected to be a high-visibility deterrent. So that was, the, that was pretty much the, uh, the transition that I watched. So it went from a, from a very covert, um, anti-terrorist organization to a highly visible, um, high-security uh, uh, sort of deterrent. So... Uh, Pretty much, I, I believe the managers just wanted it to uh, wanted us to scare away the terrorists, and instead of trying to trying to uh, proactively uh, fight them off. Now, in your view, then that that transition, that change in methodology, was possibly um, uh, not a not a good one. Absolutely not. It was. Uh, it it got to the point where the whole program just got stupid. We uh, we felt that we were just uh, we were ammo pouches for the terrorists. Our managers believed that if we wore a a suit and tie and had military grooming standards, and we 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 boarded in front of all the passengers for everybody to know that we're on the plane, that the terrorists would get scared away and go someplace else. We felt that we were just ammo pouches for the terrorists and carrying weapons on board the aircraft for them. Now, now when, when, the, the, um, when the agency first began, did it, did it begin right from the beginning with that methodology, with that, that idea, or did it at the beginning start with more of a covert um, operational standard? Now, it uh, when I when I began in October of 2001, it was very covert. We we boarded the aircraft where in which nobody would know who we were, except for the flight crew, and we wore clothing to blend in. 
uh, we had uh, it was it was a, it was very well run. But after May of 2002, we started getting policies of uh, dress codes, grooming policies, and pre-boarding policies that simply turned us into a high-visibility security force. Now, did you find at this stage that there was general discontent um, across the board in the agency? Where Were there a lot of people who were becoming concerned about this and becoming vocal? Yes, a lot of people just flat out quit. Most of the people that didn't have uh, vested time, career time, in uh, in the federal government, such as such as the military, special operations people, the local police and state police officers that were hired, they immediately quit and just went back to their old agencies. Okay, so so why was it then that you did not walk away? I had too much time in the federal government, and at the time, the had you had left the Border Patrol, there was no looking back. So it was pretty much, I had moved, I had relocated, I had sold my house, relocated my family from Southern California to Nevada. Uh, so I, I just, that was no, that was no option. Other people were quitting and just walking back to their agencies. Federal agents don't do that. Once you leave your agency, they don't want you back. And uh, so I had to stick it out and uh, fight through it. Now, we move on then to the, uh, the, the general incident here where um, you felt that it was necessary and just to speak out about the uh, problem over this two-month period. Um, what did it take you to make that decision? It must have been a very hard decision, and did you implore others to join you, or were you just steadfast in ensuring that uh, people would be protected um, come hell or high water on your part? Well, you kind of have to get an idea of what kind of what we were facing every for the for an entire year. There were these there was this suit and tie dress code policy and this military grooming standard and then we were being pre-boarded in front of the passengers in the exit lanes so we were already being served up everybody knew who we were we were having passengers congratulate us on the airplane because they were so happy of flying with us um that was sort of that was the uh that that's that's how we went to work every day so in july of 03 we get this emergency one-on-one threat briefing. We were all contacted and told there is, a, there is an emergency briefing everybody needs to walk inside their field office and receive. They couldn't get it through email. They couldn't get through any type of correspondence. We had to physically walk inside the field office and receive this uh, al-Qaeda terrorist briefing. And this was in July 26 of 2003 that this was issued by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security, and even the government of Saudi Arabia had issued this alert. And the alert was specific, that terrorists were going to exploit an immigration loophole in which they would fly in from foreign countries that had weak security into a U.S. airport that didn't mandate you to go back through security. And they would exploit that 
because, and there was a visa program the United States government had that if, if you came from a country where there were terrorist highs, you did not need the special visa to get in the United States because you were going to fly back out of the United States and only have a temporary stay. That was the loophole they were going to exploit. They were going to smuggle weapons onto a, U, a, a flight leaving the U.S. and overtake the crew and fly those planes into, uh, into East Coast or European targets. That never... So this was the briefing we were given, and just two days after we were being given these emergency one-on-one briefings, the agency had run out of money by misspending its budget funds, and it planned to save money for two months by removing air marshals from long-distance, nonstop flights. How were you aware of that? We were given a text message that was unsecured, unmarked, and unclassified sent to our general telephone telling us that we had to immediately cancel hotel rooms in order to avoid hotel cancellation costs. And that's where it tipped off. I spoke to a supervisor about it. He told me about the plan that headquarters TSA was going to implement in order to save money because there was no, no more money. It was not a field office plan. It was headquarters plan. After speaking to my supervisor, I decided to go to the Office of Inspector General. They essentially told me they couldn't do anything. This was beyond them. And that's where I decided to, uh, to make the disclosure to the media. Now, now, had you discussed this with any colleagues? Had you tried to rally up support with anybody to do this as a group effort rather than on your own? I did. Well, what I did when I did speak to uh, colleagues, I was just verifying that the plan was national. But uh, in order to protect them, you don't really ask your friends to fall on swords. You don't ask them, hey, go to the media about this, or if you're going to go to the media. The more people know about what you're going to do, uh, the more that puts them in jeopardy. So I confirmed that the plan was nationwide, and even the media person that I spoke to had also confirmed that the, uh, that the plan was going to be operational, and he had sources that were outside of my field office. So in actual fact, um, you were providing this information, but, but the media already knew about it? That's correct. I was just a uh, confirming source. Okay. So what occurred after that? Um, it, it, it has to be a given now that because of your actions and the actions of uh, some of these officials in the media that um, this was rescinded and air marshals were placed back on these flights, which probably, clearly, saved lives or, or may have saved lives. Um, what occurred after that? Uh, well, I have to correct you. Uh, <clears throat> there was never, air marshals were never removed from flights. The plan never, ever went in operation. The plan was supposed to go in operation five, five days after I made the disclosure. The day after, the day the, the article 
hit the news, and it made the it made the front page of the Washington Post, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, so many different media, uh, because key members of the Senate, both uh, you know bipartisan, had uh, they they conducted a video press conference and just protested the move, and that's ultimately what had the TSA reverse what it did. But uh, it was definitely surreal, especially when I had to see President uh, George W. Bush explaining the plan in a, in a press conference on the Rose Garden. But, so, uh, but, but, I'm, but I am assuming correctly here that it was rescinded, and, and in part it was rescinded, thank goodness, because of your efforts and because of the efforts of the media and these individuals in government? That's correct. And specifically, to give them credit, it was Senator Barbara Boxer of California, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, uh, Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts, Senator Frank Lautenberg of New Jersey, Hal Rogers of uh, Congressman out of Kentucky, and uh, and most importantly, Senator Hillary Clinton of New York. All of them went very public, even issuing uh, press statements and uh, uh, press releases to the media. So your efforts um, uh, are clearly congratulated here, and you move on uh, through the service until 2006. Now, what is occurring uh, in that period between uh, this event this being rescinded and you receiving your termination notice? Well, um, I felt kind of, I got tired of being an anonymous a source for the media. Uh, I believed it was sort of a cowardly move. I believe it's, it was time to start doing this on a professional level. And I felt the best way to do it was to be, I founded the first TSA Federal Air Marshal Service chapter of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, which is a professional, nonpartisan, fraternal group of non-union federal agents, uh, approximately about 30,000 members. I decided to, found, to, to be the founding member of that chapter. We founded the uh, chapter just three weeks after my disclosure so we formed it. We immediately got almost 2,000 federal air marshals to sign up as members. And a membership was $100, so there was some sacrifice there. We, the, our nas- the, the national board of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, which is, we also call as FLEOA, they were clearly moved by the, by the, the rise in membership. And I became the executive vice president for our chapter. And from there, instead of making anonymous disclosures to the media, we decided to make a collective uh, communication with, uh, with members of Congress. And we became instantly, my, my executive board on the chapter immediately became targets for the agency. Now, now, w- w- now with that collective uh, authority and support behind you, um, you are nevertheless in 2006 still terminated 
and and what occurred with the um, other members of this association, and how did they help you? That's correct. Uh, we were we were subject to numerous targets uh, uh, in witch hunt investigations by our Eternal Affairs Unit, and pretty much out of the five out of our five outspoken chapter officers, and all of the investigations that came through, only one charge stuck, and that charge was against me. They the agency sustained one charge against me, which was unauthorized release of sensitive security information three years after the fact. They retroactively marked my disclosure to the media, and uh, that's how they fired me. Now, but given the, the support that you now have with this, this uh, organization that you've helped to set up, yeah. um, what, what, was the, what, were, what were they doing? What, how did they act on this to support you? They have been, they have always been loud advocates for me. Uh, they have, the, 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 national, the national officers for the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association have advocated for me before the media, before Congress, and even have provided me uh, the, uh, the help of their general counsel to litigate my case uh, for the last uh, four years. But nevertheless, these people are still actively working within the organization. That's correct, and they're all still uh, active-duty uh, federal law enforcement officers, too. And to what extent do you think that they have gone to, and have they gone to the, the, the best extent that they can in, in reversing this decision? I, be I believe for being a nonprofit organization, they have done all that they can do for me. And I'm pretty satisfied with what they've done. They've testified every time that they get a chance to testify before Congress. They 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 always loudly uh, bring up my case as somebody that needs that needs to to have his the wrongs right righted. So I have I am satisfied with what they've done for me. Uh, what I'm not satisfied about is that. So many of the members of Congress that wanted to thank me and got up on soapboxes screaming and yelling about what the TSA was planning to do, they have been pretty silent. And uh, I really wish they would come out and start publicly supporting me. Now, this in a way makes you a martyr, doesn't it? I mean, it, it makes you a martyr who has pretty much lost so much uh, in being faithful to a country and being faithful to a department like this. And, and as much as, um, as that is an incredible gift to have, it necessarily still uh, states the point that, that you are on the outside and everybody else is on the inside, and nobody seems to have the will to be able to do anything about it. Well, a pretty big problem is, is I was, as a Border Patrol agent and a, in an Air Force, an Air Force uh, enlistee, I was a little naive to what a national security bureaucracy can do to you for stepping out of the line. They expect you to be loyal to the bureaucracy and not to public safety 
or to uh, and to the oath that you took, and sort of look we're, when we take an oath to be law enforcement officers, we don't take an oath to protect our managers from embarrassment and mismanagement. We take an oath to protect people's lives, even even though and even putting our own lives in danger. So hopefully people start taking their oaths seriously and do what it takes to protect uh, life and property and not to go silent like everybody else does and safely keep their jobs. And unfortunately, we have a lot of officers who just turn a blind eye to uh, to these uh, to, to gross mismanagement. What is the situation in the agency now? Has it changed since all this occurred? Ha- has dress code changed? Has uh, uh, um, the strategy changed and the the the, the standard operating procedures, or, or have they all stayed in place? Where, um, as you described, uh, air marshals are basically become celebrities on these flights. Well, I've been out of the loop for quite a long time since they fired me uh, almost four years ago. But what I've been told is when when I was in, the policies were actually written on in national uh, in national policy books. But since they've been shredded, but what ha- what's going on is some of these managers in field offices have gone rogue from headquarters and are orally implementing their own inane policies, such as what they expect their people to dress like and look like when they fly on aircraft. So a lot of what's happened is that headquarters has kind of lost control of many of its field offices. And if you've seen on CNN and CBS News, uh, Evening News, that uh, a lot of these these uh, field offices have sort of gone rogue and implementing uh, their own uh, secret policies. If you uh, were, um, if you were approached by this situation again, would I be incorrect in saying that you would not hesitate in uh, taking the action that you did then? I'm asked this question quite a lot, quite a bit, and I and I would do this over again, but. At this point in my life, if somebody came up to me and asked me for my advice that they were in the same shoes that I was in back in July of 2003, I would definitely caution them and tell them what they're going to be up against, that they could be unemployed for years, they could be blackballed in their industry, even in the private sector, that you're going to lose a lot of friends, and it could it could ruin your life to a point where you may not be able to uh, bounce back up again. Well, does that not go against everything that is so wonderful about this country? I mean, that that doesn't say too much, does it? If you're willing to step up and point out defects in the system. Yes, it's uh, it's there have been unfortunately there's been. There's, there's been powerful people placed in powerful positions that have really uh, eroded a lot of what our American values were, such as what you just said. 
So how has life been, uh, Robert, since uh, the termination? Uh, where, where, where have you uh, attempted to find work, uh, and what are the challenges? I, I applied at entry-level positions with uh, local law enforcement agencies throughout Southern California, and every single one of them denied my application. Um, some of them pretty much use a uh, innocuous statement uh, one actually even said that we do not want to cross paths with the Department of Homeland Security given your litigation against them. And some companies actually have told me that they believe my case is so rock solid and so strong that they think uh, hiring me would be a risk because I'm going to eventually prevail and they're going to lose me going back to uh, federal service. So it is definitely frustrating, and but uh, I uh, I have a, a family that's supported me quite a bit, and good friends. My community supports me. My local newspaper has done so many uh, great articles that have advocated for my case, and of course the uh, the national media has. But uh, that's the thing that kind of keeps me going. But as far as uh, you can be you can be a hero all day long, uh, but and get all the pats on the back, but it doesn't pay the bills. During your termination, though, the the termination notice uh, provided to you stated, "I considered your combined fourteen years of military and civilian federal service, including your five years as a federal air marshal. I also considered that you have no previous discipline with the." Uh, with the FAMS and that your previous performance appraisals were satisfactory. Uh, my goodness me, is that not a, a, um, a rather a, um, controversial um, and opposing statement to make uh, in such an excessive uh, decision being, being taken here? Absolutely. And the, the removing official, it's pretty obvious in his testimonies that he, he could not stop saying wonderful things about my career and my person, but there was an overwhelming pressure from TSA headquarters to carry out my termination. They went, the TSA went through great lengths to, to, to remove me by retroactively marking my disclosure with an unclassified information marking so they've they've done everything that they could on paper to uh, to keep me from uh, being reinstated. I I did uh, I did uh, piss off a lot of people up in headquarters. What or how has it changed in any way your feelings for this country? Are you still a steadfast um, patriot? who believes in this country, uh, believes in our systems, um, are you still steadfast there? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, I, th I still think we have the best system of government in the world, the best judicial system. I just believe that there are some very bad people and with very poor judgment that have been placed in positions of power and are willing to do whatever it takes to protect their position. And they will use the government, the U.S. government's blank check 
an endless source of uh, taxpayer funds to fund its agency attorneys to litigate uh, against people like me. But I do believe in the system. Unfortunately, there's some there's some uh, rogue individuals that have too much power in our uh, executive bureaucracy and are abusing it. Now, assuming at some stage here, and we're going to be extremely enthusiastic and confident about this, that you get reinstated because that's why we are doing this, where would you like to be reinstated and how would you wish the authorities to... Uh, to apologize in any way, perhaps, or would you just write to be reinstated, forget about the whole incident, and move forward? Absolutely. I just want to move forward. I don't need to... The, the, the bureaucrats that did this to me, I don't need to kick them out of their house or have them go to jail or be driving their cars around or or getting rich off of them. I just want to go back to work and put... Uh, bad guys uh, behind bars, and I just I don't want I don't want compensatory damages. I don't need to get rich off of that, the taxpayers. I just want to go back to work and uh, hopefully be made somewhat whole in the future. But uh, as as every day goes on, I just I see that uh, those hopes just uh, getting more and more dim every day. Who is it that we should be um, sending out this message to, Robert? Uh, should it be uh, uh, people in Congress? Um, who should we be uh, uh, very assertive with uh, to ensure that this happens as soon as possible? Probably the oversight committees, uh, the Senate Homeland, the the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, the House Homeland Security Committee. Uh, those are the key committees that have oversight over the uh, TSA, Federal Air, Air Marshal Service. So on the congressional side, it would be them. But uh, as far as the executive agency side, the, it, the acting administrator for the TSA can immediately uh, end this litigation against me. And it would, uh, it would definitely save the agency a lot of faith and the taxpayers a lot of money. Now, at, assuming that at some stage here uh, they reinstate you, um, would it be the TSA that you would look at as a long-term career? I, uh, the way the regulations are set up and the way case precedent is, uh, if I were to prevail in this case, they would just have to drop me right back into the TSA Federal Air Marshal Service. I, I would not have any type of... Uh, I could I could not have uh, any I, I couldn't make them put me in another agency where I would not face retaliation. So hopefully somebody with people with common sense would, if I were to get reinstated, would place me in a position where we don't have any more of these personality conflicts and potential uh, witch hunt witch hunt investigations to retaliate against me even more. You're talking about retaliation, but, but retaliation from whom exactly? Uh, from the uh, Department of Homeland Security or the Transportation Security Administration. Um, that would, if I were to be reinstated, I'd have to go right back to those agencies. And we can potentially be, be uh, playing this whole thing over again. So... What would your 
message be to Congress? What would your message be to um, the government agency in which you are pursuing uh, legal um, activities here? What would be your message uh, surmising this uh, to show that simply uh, you want to return back to work, uh, you want to serve and protect your country? Yes, uh, I just want to go back to work. I don't, uh, I don't necessarily need to see people prosecuted. Uh, hopefully I can go someplace where, where I'm not, I'm not a, a target of retaliation. I believe the federal whistleblower protection laws need to be reformed immediately and that uh, executive agencies uh, set up systems in place where uh, people who make uh, national security and public safety disclosures are not retaliated against. The, uh, this, I happen to be one of the few people that decided to, to fight this case to the bitter end. But 95% of people don't because they know it's a losing battle. And unfortunately, everything that's happened to me makes potentially hundreds of other federal agents not want to come forward and suffer the same type of, uh, of retaliation that I did. Now, are there similar cases to yours at the moment? Oh, absolutely. You have Craig Sawyer, who is my supervisor, in my uh, field office, you have Spencer Pickard, who uh, who blew the whistle on ABC News, and uh, those guys got fired, and they just decided that it wasn't worth spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on an attorney in a losing venue, such as the venue that I'm in, the U.S. Merit Systems Protection Board. Most people just just quit and walk away, and end up with a black mark on their record. Now, um, in the, the closing 10 minutes of the program, can you tell me a bit about your, your family and uh, friends and the, the support that you've received uh, during this uh, difficult period? Yeah, I get uh, my ever, even, even, even uh, frontline flying federal air marshals today, they still call me, they email me with their support. They follow my case. They help me in any which way they can. My family, of course, has been at my side. I've been married to the same beautiful woman for the last 11 years, and we have two little girls, and we've, uh, we've managed to stay together. I've lost my home and had to move in with my parents, but uh, I still managed to survive. And the Tom Devine, the legal director for the Government Accountability Project, and Danielle Bryan with the Project on Government Oversight, and John Adler with the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association have always, they have always yelled and screamed about, about my reinstatement and my case being the, uh, uh, a landmark case on what happens to national security whistleblowers. Um, I can't, uh, I'm happy with, with, with all of the support that I've gotten from just regular everyday folks and citizens, especially from, from, all, from all media, from CNN, Fox News, 
the Washington Post, the Washington Times, they have all supported me. So I've been very lucky in that regard. Unfortunately, there's an army of attorneys with unlimited resources working for the TSA that will do everything in their power to make sure that uh, I'm not reinstated or that, uh, like you said, that I'm not made a martyr because I can potentially be the slippery slope for more people coming forward and exposing uh, gross mismanagement. It appears uh, to me that the difficult and life-changing commitment to the, alert the public of a plan to pull air marshals from flights in 2003 and forced essential changes uh, in the agency's national security system, w would that be a fair statement? Well, absolutely, and look what happened on last Christmas. The underwear bomber was on an aircraft, got on board an aircraft, and there were no air marshals on that plane. And according to the Washington Times, air marshals told, told them the reason why there were no federal air marshals on the ground in Amsterdam Airport or on the flight is because of budgetary issues. But we have air marshals that are telling the media that they're flying regional jets between uh, cities that are only a few hundred miles apart. So we have to figure out what our priorities are. And otherwise, we're going to start seeing more planes fall out of the sky. What, is your, uh, what are your thoughts on the future of this wonderful country uh, from where you sit today? Um, are you excited about this country? We clearly have m many economic and social problems. Um, but what, did it, what is it that, that you feel about this great country and that you want to bring to it uh, personally? I think, uh, I think the biggest problem we have in this country is uh, not having term limits for our politicians. We have the same politicians that uh, get reelected all the time. And they are, they are in debt to special interests. And until we put, until we start um, formulating new political parties and having term limits and getting the lobbyists out of Washington, we're going to continue going, uh, going in the wrong path of this country. But uh, we have to stop making our, our, our Congress and our White House being bought by special interests. And that's my biggest concern right now. But other than that, I think uh, we're, we, I have a lot of hope that we can, uh, that we can uh, pick up and fly right. Well, finally, uh, Robert, um, how will it be uh, when one of these days you are reinstated to a job that, that you love and a job that shows the love of your country? Well, we hope that the, uh, the administrative judge with the uh, U.S. Merit Systems Protection Board makes a, uh, makes a righteous decision and that the, uh, executive, uh, the executive power uh, puts me someplace back where uh, I can once again honorably serve. So we're just right now in a holding pattern. We're still we're going into our fifth month waiting for the administrative judge to render a decision. So all we have to do is wait and see. And to the youngsters of this uh, nation, would you still um, highly recommend that they 
work for government agencies and support their country despite these these issues? Absolutely. Uh, serve your country if you feel strongly about it and always follow orders, but don't be afraid to question orders and to hold people accountable for orders that are wrong or put people in uh, danger. Follow orders and go into the military, you follow orders, but be ready and be, be not afraid to question orders and to hold people accountable, especially uh, those who are high up on your uh, chain of command. Don't back down and support those who do so. Robert McLean, it has been a real pleasure today uh, talking to you uh, about these issues, about your life. Um, I'm proud that I hope I can say that in some way we can help you to achieve reinstatement back to a job that you love. Thank you very much, David. And uh, to our listeners, it is to his credit that the outcome of this period in his actions has raised positive and inward-looking initiatives to resolve weaknesses in the operation of our country's most important security department. In recognizing that personal sacrifice, the reinstatement of Mr. McLean in law enforcement is necessary, where dedication to country can again be celebrated. I hope that you, our listeners, have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series by visiting davidgibbons.org. Wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.